Room 2000 Calling by Theodora Benson She was beautiful, so beautiful that this was the dominant, the overwhelming factor of her life. I do not think that she would have been particularly a coward without this beauty, but it added to her a sort of spurious courage. She was never afraid to commit herself in any direction, because she did not feel that circumstances bound her with that finality they so often impose upon the rest. She counted upon her natural gift to carry her with grace, and even triumph through retreats, evasions and disavowals, which shame or lack of self-confidence forbade to others. And so she brought to each occasion a misleading, fugitive sincerity that scorned to listen to the counsel of the world or the threat of the future. She responded to the secret service agent with that generosity of hers that counted not the cost, knowing well enough that it never had happened that the cost had been borne by her. He loved her, she realised, with all that makes a man. But then, after all, so did she love him. You don't really mean it, he said. It's only moonlight and glamour. I just excite you. You don't really give a damn for me. You'll forget me, so that in a little while from now you wouldn't put yourself out to come and see me if I were dying. Straining herself to him in his arms, she cried. That isn't true. Living or dying or dead, I'd come to you if you sent for me. No matter where or no matter when. She meant it. But she treated him badly, shabbily, cruelly. And less than a year later she married somebody else. Not so long after that she had indeed forgotten him, almost as though he had never been. She had not seen him for three years, and she had been married for two when she and her husband went to live for a while in New York. Her husband was away spending a few days with a business friend in the country, when, on a certain evening, she went out to a party, and returned at half-past two. As she came into her room, the telephone began ringing. She recognised the voice of her secret service agent, as unmistakably as though she had last heard it yesterday. A minute later, her own voice, raised and anxious, attracted her maid, Connie, in the next room, and brought her in. Hello? Hello? They, they've cut me off. Operator, can you reconnect me? I was cut off. I want the Hotel Savoyard. Room 2000. No, I haven't got the hotel number. They were calling me. Wait a minute. Oh, never mind. Impatiently, she replaced the receiver. She said to her maid, Connie, I think I'm going out again. You needn't wait up. But madam has just come in. She brushed that aside. What of it? It's only half past two, the edge of the evening, and I'm a grass widow. Besides, she became confidential, and a little uneasy. I've had a telephone call asking me to come round, and it sounded important. I was cut off in the middle. I don't know what's the matter with the telephone tonight, madam, said Connie. It's rung a dozen times since one o'clock. But each time I answered it, there was nobody there. As she said good night to Connie, gathered up her cloak and bag, and sped away. 
She thought to herself, I suppose I'm right to go. It was funny, wasn't it? But it's such luck, my creature being away. And I'm looking lovely. Yes, she was looking lovely. Lovelier even than she had looked last time she had seen him. Three years ago. She touched up her face and patted her hair in the elevator that took her up to the twentieth floor. Full of confidence, but oddly excited, she tapped at room 2000's door. There was no reply. She could just make out that the light was on. She waited a moment, tapped louder, waited again. Her mind revolved rapidly. I wonder what he'll be like after three years. What will he think of me now? I wonder what on earth made him call me up, and how he knew where I was. He sounded so queerly urgent. And why did he quote what I said to him that time about coming to him if he should ever send? It wasn't very tactful to bring that up, all things considered. Why doesn't he answer? He did sound urgent. Something about the silence and the lateness of the hour began to scare her. She ran to the elevator and went down again to the lobby. She made them telephone to his room, but they reported that the receiver was off. Finally, she made a bellhop take her up again with the key. She never finally forgot the sight that room 2000 presented when they opened the door. It was in a state of the wildest disorder, floorboards torn up, cushions slashed, the contents of the drawers scattered everywhere. On the bed, smiling and amused, but somewhat chilling smile, lay the Secret Service agent, with his throat cut almost through. His hands hung limply down, one each side of the bed, and near one of them hung, scarcely more limply from its cord, the disconnected telephone receiver. His gold watch also hung out upon its chain, and the pocket that should have sheltered it was turned half inside out, as though the watch, which by the way was not going, had been snatched violently from it. The flesh had curled back each side from the wound in the man's neck, and this wound was so deep that the head, had it lacked support, might have torn itself from the body. The bellhop turned aside and was sick in the corridor. The lady took a long, steady look, wondered why she presently had a sensation of suffocating, and realised that she was holding her breath. She looked away and breathed quickly and gaspingly. Then she and the bellhop pulled themselves together. They closed the door. They took the elevator. They travelled twenty floors down again, and gave the alarm. The hotel manager was summoned. More to the point, the police were summoned. Of vain necessity, a doctor was summoned. The lady behaved well, quite composed, and still lovely, but very, very ghastly. She waited alone in the little room that the management allotted. The police would surely have a few useless questions to ask her, and very surely she would have questions to ask the police. The police had plenty to do. The murderers had been so suddenly interrupted by the arrival of the lady that they had not made a very tidy getaway. In their hurry, 
they had really left some clues, and a slender, not so very slender, chance of tracing them. Best of all, they had failed to find the paper for which they had killed the Secret Service agent. It looked as though they had almost had their hands on it, after their long frantic search, when the interruption had come. For surely it must have been they who had plucked that watch so rudely from its pocket, who in their fright had dropped it again as rudely, leaving it dangling by its golden chain. Sure enough, inside the watch-case the thin folded paper lay, and ample provocation that watch had for not going, since that was all the works it contained at all. It was about four in the morning when one of the police came to interview the lady who had found the corpse. That is, nearly an hour after the alarm had been raised. He smiled to himself, much tickled by the realisation that the killer had been tearing the room to bits with nothing to show for it for some time, when the lady had knocked at the door at about ten minutes before three. For the lady, the wait till four o'clock seemed very much longer than it did for him. She kept seeing that neck she had used to encircle with her fingers, slit across and almost through. Those hands that had been so very strong, limp and horrible now, hanging as foolishly as the telephone receiver that dangled from its cord. Telephone. All the time she kept thinking of her dead lover's voice, so unmistakable, so urgent, calling her in the name of that promise made long ago. She, who had broken many promises to him, had, after all, kept that. Four o'clock now. An hour and a half ago he had been talking to her. It seemed hardly possible. An hour and a half ago. Thank God. Somebody coming at last. Footsteps. That big police force, tough-talking, in a quiet but somehow penetrating voice. Yes, they'd been searching for two hours, clear, he was saying. The doctor swears to it, that stiff up there has been dead for a good three hours. He opened her door and paused upon the threshold. Why, doctor, he called. Come here. The ladies fainted. By Water by Algernon Blackwood No matter how queer the story, there is, I hold, always a reasonable explanation. Or, shall we say, a possible explanation. The queerer the story, the queerer, of course, the explanation. This holds true of the story I am going to tell you. There is a catch in it, at the very end, where it belongs. The catch, however, I leave to you. If the end of the story is sad, it at least opens happily for it concerns a young couple who were in love and waiting to get married, as soon as the young man's position justified it. His prospects were bright, for he had just got a good job as mining engineer in some natron works in Egypt, the desert a few miles away from the Nile. It meant a year or more without leave, but prospects of advancement were good. Barring the separation, life seemed very rosy to them, 
and it was a few days before he left that the girl surprised him rather by asking him to go and see a fortune-teller she had heard about. Someone had taken her, and she had been impressed. The girl had in her, evidently, just that touch of speculative superstition that adds to her charm, because it enables a man to look down upon her a little. Just to please me, she pleaded. The woman is wonderful. Before I had been five minutes with her, she told me your name was Jim, so there must be something in it. Jim neither believed nor disbelieved. He felt really no interest of any kind, but the girl was in earnest. He went, he listened, he paid the fee, and he came back with his report, making a little story of it in the way he knew she loved. Results, however, were meagre and unconvincing. I'm going to make a long voyage, he reported. A lot of money is coming to me. I'm going to marry a girl with dark hair and eyes. He gazed into her blue eyes and kissed her golden hair. His rather superior smile was, no doubt, exasperating. All the same, he didn't fool her. She had noticed a hesitation in his voice. That's not all, Jim, she said. You're keeping something back. Well... He hesitated again. There was a little more, he confessed. But you take it so seriously. Something unpleasant, she interrupted nervously. Jim laughed, but he had to get it all out of his system then. The woman had warned him to be careful of water, of fresh water. She can't have meant washing, he laughed. And it's certainly not shipwreck. I shall be a clever man if I can get drowned in Egypt. There's only the Nile, and the works are several miles away. Drowning, Jim? the girl exclaimed. Did she mention drowning? Here, however, Jim equivocated. He shook his head, passing it off with a laugh and a kiss. But he kept one sentence to himself. For the fortune-teller had said a very extraordinary thing in warning him about his danger from fresh water. She had used the words, You may drown, and yet not know you drown. There seemed no meaning in them, and all the way to Trieste and Alexandria, Jim was glad he had kept the rubbish to himself. The confession had nearly been worried out of him. He smiled over the promise that had been wormed out of him, for he had sworn that he would never once go to the Nile, if his work made it imperative, he would wear a cork belt. Oh, he gave fantastic promises. He kept them too, a quixotic fellow. But the nearest he ever got to the Nile was to cross the bridges in Cairo once or twice. No cork belt needed for that. Meanwhile, the time passed quickly enough. The job worked well, and the promotion and increased pay that would make marriage possible came within sight. The ridiculous warning about fresh water had entirely left his mind. The girl's letters never referred to it. The only thing he had to complain about were the hot summer months. In that scorching Egyptian desert, he had twice had a touch of the sun, though not serious. He had kept it to himself. As for the Nile, the only fresh water within reach, he had hardly seen it. 
He was too busy to think of pleasure trips. It was only after 18 months that his first leave came. He went to Cairo for a few days before sailing, and it was in Cairo that the nonsense about fresh water cropped up in his mind once or twice. But that was merely because he saw the river every day. Then, on a Friday, which instead of Sunday is the Mohammedan day of rest, he rode out to the works for a last look round, carrying lunch and tea on the saddle. And it was on the way back, in the savage heat of the afternoon, that his pony stumbled over a boulder on the treacherous desert film, threw him heavily, broke the girth, bolted before he could seize the reins again, and left him stranded, some ten miles from home. He poo-pooed it at first. He picked himself up. He could cover the distance home in four hours at most. But there was a severe pain in his knee that made walking difficult. A mile an hour was the best he could manage. There was also a buzzing in his head that troubled sight and made the landscape swim. And, worse than either, his provisions, fastened to the saddle, had vanished with the frightened pony into those blazing leagues of sand. He was alone in the desert, beneath the pitiless afternoon sun. Not so pleasant, after all. He reflected a few minutes. The wisest course was to sit down and wait till the pony told its obvious story to the stable, and help came. And this was what he did, for the scorching heat was dangerous. He was shaken by his fall, hungry and weak into the bargain, and his knee had swollen, a misplaced cartilage, no doubt. He sat down and rubbed it. In the heat of the sun he began to feel drowsy. He was exhausted. A soft torpor crept over him. He dozed. He fell asleep. It was a long, a dreamless sleep. For when he woke at length, the sun had just dipped below the desert, and the air was chilly. It was the cold that waked him. There is no dusk in Egypt. The darkness dropped at once. The first stars came out, clear as diamonds. The sky turned deep violet. He looked round and realised that his sense of direction was confused. The cold grew bitter as the wind rose. The pain in his knee having eased a little, he got up and walked a bit. And in a moment lost sight of the spot where he had been lying. That awful desert. Devoid of detail. Swallowed everything. He heard the wind sighing over its deadly surface. He shivered with the cold, and hunger gnawed. To keep warm, however, he was compelled to move, so he made a little pile of stones to mark the place, and limped round and round it in a circle of some dozen yards diameter, hobbling painfully. But when he looked for the little pile of stones, he saw that there were dozens of them, scores, hundreds, thousands of these little groups of stones. The desert's face, of course, is thickly strewn with them. The original one was lost in the first five minutes. He did all he could to keep warm, waving his arms like a London cabman, trying to stamp his feet, but eventually he lay down exhausted beneath an overhanging limestone crag and took snatches of fitful dog sleep. The bitter wind drove past, 
and the dry sand pricked his skin. The stars were out in their bright thousands. Through his dreams he heard the jackal's cry. But it was not a jackal's cry that woke him with a start in the early morning. It was a voice. In his head, of course, a jumbled dream of the clairvoyant woman had come to him. She had said something. The sentence fled away over the desert. But one word remained. Water. He was bewildered at first, but at once explanation followed. Cause and effect were obvious. The clue was physical. His body needed water. He was thirsty. Terribly thirsty. This was the moment when real fear first touched him. Hunger he could manage. But thirst, thirst in the desert, frightened him. He had smoked a lot. Had eaten spiced things at lunch had breathed in alkali with the dry, scorched air. He searched for a cool pebble to put into his burning mouth, but found only angular scraps of dusty limestone. And there were no pebbles here. Why hadn't the pony come back? The search party ought to have got there long ago. It was the return of the sun he now dreaded. It came up with a sudden rush. The merciless sun. The marvellous desert dawn was over in a moment. Already the air was warming up. He watched the shadows. But in an hour there would be no shadows any more. There would be no shade. He knew what that meant. The hours of furnace heat. Already his lips and mouth were parched. He watched the shadows growing smaller, retreating till they disappeared. The dawn wind had died away. The air began to burn. Wasn't it better to try and walk towards the help he knew must come? The sun, now well above the horizon, gave him a direction. He tried. He started off in spite of the pain in his stiffened knee. He staggered feebly, unsteadily over the crunching desert film. He walked and walked and walked. For miles, it seemed, he walked. But whether he advanced or merely moved in a circle, he never quite knew. He saw nothing but little piles of stones. Scores and hundreds of them. Each bit of desert seemed familiar, since each bit was a repetition of the bit in front, behind, on either side. The little piles of stones began dancing in that awful blaze then. He was a bit delirious, of course. He made a plucky effort then. A night and a day, he laughed, while his lips cracked smartingly with the stretching of the skin. Aye, it's nothing. Many a chap has lasted days and days. Yes, only he was not quite of that rare company. He was unaccustomed to privation. This kind of bitter test was new to him. He didn't know how to spare himself. Thirst and the desert simply played with him. His tongue was now badly swollen. The parched throat could not swallow. His ears, strained for the sound of feet and voices, heard nothing but the irregular pulsing of his blood. 
and the way those little piles of stones went dancing, even into the air, was horrible. He knew enough to realise that he was getting out of hand a bit, and he had just wit enough left to find a sandy mound that stood a little bit above the dead level everywhere. He would be more easily seen if he perched on its crest. Just managing to stagger up to it, he sank down, utterly exhausted on its top. And there he lay, while the furnace heat blazed down upon him. He lay two hours, three, four hours. The sky, when he opened his eyes once, was empty. The next time he saw a speck, and presently another speck, far, far away, but descending in stealthy circles. The vultures. Half unconscious now. He lay there motionless, dreaming of water. Water. Hearing it splash and ripple. Ice clinking in a glass. Cool liquid pouring down his throat in a delicious gushing flood. These water dreams increased his agony a hundredfold, and a voice came with it sometimes. Strange words that seemed meaningless and yet familiar. You will drown, yet will not know you drown. His swollen lips called out a name, but no sound was audible. He closed his eyes. There came sweet unconsciousness. A sound in that instant was audible there. It was a voice. Voices. A thud of animal hoofs. The specks had vanished from the sky as mysteriously as they came. And as though in subconscious answer to the sound, he made a movement. His body made it. An automatic, an unconscious movement. He did not know he moved. His body, uncontrolled, lost its precarious balance. He rolled, slowly, slowly down the sloping mound of sand he turned sideways, like a log of wood. He slid, gradually, nothing to stop him, to the bottom, a few feet only, and not even steep, just steep enough to keep rolling, slowly, slowly. But he did not know he rolled. There was a splash. But he did not know there was a splash. They found him in a pool of water, one of those rare pools the Bedouin mark so preciously for their own. He had lain within three yards of it for hours. It was so marvellously concealed. He was drowned, yet he did not know he drowned. Today's stories were Room 2000 Calling by Theodora Benson and By Water by Algernon Blackwood. They were read by Jasper Lestrange. Thank you for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>